Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. It is Friday, May the 3rd, 2019, and I'm recording this at 7.51 a.m. Central Time. Well, to be honest with you this morning, I don't really know where to begin. Now, all the information I have in front of me is very straightforward, but I want to try to avoid the way this controversy is being handled. I want to I want to try to approach it in a more thoughtful and in a more complete and a more complete way. I want I want to try to give us a a chance to really look at this and be fair and to be accurate. So, let me kind of introduce this controversy in this way. As someone who has stood behind a pulpit week after week after week after week for a long time, I know that when you preach, there's always the potential for great controversy. And the more people who hear your sermon, the greater chance that that controversy can begin to spread. When my messages were being heard by, you know, something close to 30,000 people a month. Well, there were times my sermons could be very controversial. When my sermons are not being heard by that many people, they may be controversial uh, amongst the, the local congregation, among the people who are present, but that controversy doesn't really spread. And so you may have to handle the internal controversy. But once it reaches out there to you, 30,000, 40,000, 60,000, 70,000, you know, when, you're, when you are a famous pastor and your sermon is heard everywhere, well, then that controversy can begin to spread from website to website to website to podcast to podcast to podcast. And what we have this morning is a sermon. It was preached back in January of 2019, but here we are, May the 3rd, and this morning there was an email from a website that I subscribe to who sends out news articles every Friday about what's happening in the world of Christianity. And guess what? There was an article reporting on this sermon that was preached back in January. Now, at the end of January, beginning of February, a number of websites uh, started talking about it. Um, a, a lot of podcasts started talking about it. If I, if I remember correctly, I think Dr. James White, um, I believe he even addressed it in one of his podcasts. This, this got a lot of attention, and a lot of people had opinions on it, but they're still talking about it. So, so what, what could I do? Well, I could just grab the news articles, read the headlines, and say, look, here's this pastor, here's his name, he preached this sermon, and then give you the accusations that everyone is making about the sermon. But the only problem with that is, I think we have to listen to the entire sermon. And here's the reason why. Because so many times, as a pastor, I definitely know this, you stand behind the pulpit and you're going to deal with a, a subject that that basically within the Christian world, there is a, it's like a, an agreed upon way that you have to handle the subject. So it doesn't matter what the subject is. There's, there, there are some subjects within Christianity that you have kind of a majority opinion. And if you wander off, if you kind of go against that grain, then boom, everyone attacks you. 
because you didn't follow suit. You didn't stay within the lines. You didn't color in the lines. And you better do what they tell you. You better think the way they tell you. Now, listen, there, I, I want to make sure you understand what I am saying here. There is groupthink that happens within Christianity. This is the way you have to think about a passage of Scripture. Don't question it. Don't challenge it. Don't look at it deeper. Don't try to be fair. Don't try to be balanced. You just go along with what we tell you. That is wrong. That I condemn. I don't like groupthink. However, there's a, but, but that could be, you can go against groupthink, but then it can be very easy to slide into, well, now you're going against the scriptures. Now you're mishandling the scriptures. Now you're, you're sliding into the world of heresy and false doctrine. I am not in any way advocating or supporting false doctrine or the mishandling of scripture. I condemn that. But at the same time, I think that there are many passages of scripture where you don't have to go along with what everyone tells you to do. You don't have to follow groupthink. You can say, wait a minute. Let's look at the passage of Scripture. Let's do proper exegesis. Let's do proper hermeneutical interpretation. Let's really, really, that's a little redundant hermeneutical interpretation. Let's do correct hermeneutics and let's interpret this passage in a way that is accurate, that is fair to the text, but it may go against, quote unquote, the group think. Now, I know I'm trying to draw a very fine line there. And what I'm, and, and even what I'm trying to say right here can be misinterpreted. I want to make this very clear. This controversy, I am not in any way, shape, or form at this point saying the pastor who preached this sermon was right. At this point, I'm not even going to say the pastor who preached this sermon is wrong. I will say this. When I saw the news article, I went and found the sermon this morning, and I started watching. I watched the video of this sermon. The video uh, is about one hour and 32 minutes long because they they give you um, a part of the worship service, you know, their announcements and everything. I, w I can tell you just from as soon as the video started, as soon as the video started, this church has all the trappings of a modern day church that I just hate and I dislike. So immediately when I just, I saw the worship, you know, the praise band, I saw just everything they did and how they talked. It's just the whole thing was is so cliche modern church. It's the template that all modern churches follow. I reject that template. I don't like it. There's a group think. Look, there's a group think in every kind of church and the modern church model, I reject it. So immediately I, I started thinking, I'm going you know, I have a bias here. I have a bias here because I already, I already don't like how this church operates. But I had to set aside my bias and go, okay, what I need to do is just listen to the sermon and judge the sermon based off the content of the sermon, not in, you know, based off the church that it was preached in. I hope everyone can understand that, right? It doesn't matter who, the, uh, what kind of church a sermon is preached in. You have to judge it based off its content, based on how they handle the scriptures. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a, a, a kind of a hint of the controversy, and then I'm going to play the entire sermon for you. And I'm not going to offer too much of my opinion. Like I said, right now, I'm not offering a condemnation, and I'm not offering an agreement. I do have strong opinions but I don't want to offer them right now because then I kind of begin to corrupt you in the sense that I 
prejudice, I, I give you a prejudice as you listen to the sermon. I, I create a bias in your mind. And that's how many of the articles work. The articles condemn the sermon and they say, oh, by the way, here, well, they don't even really say here's the link. They'll just make a part of the, like, they'll give the name of the sermon and make it a hyperlink. They don't say, look, you should go watch it for yourself. You should go listen to it for yourself. And that's what you should always do. If you're going to condemn a sermon, make sure you challenge everyone to go watch it for themselves. But if you offer the condemnation first, then provide the link, you've already built in a bias against the sermon from the people reading your article. And that I, I don't like the way that operates sometimes. I like to give um, I, well, I like people to listen and, and struggle through the message themselves before they are handed a bias. So in this particular case, I guess I'm going to, what I should do is stop right here and play the sermon, but I, but I want you to at least understand the controversy. So I guess in a way, this is going to kind of bias you or give a prejudice, but I'll try to correct that before we're done. All right, here we go. Let's go to the news article. We'll go to the news article that I received um, this morning. Um, I woke up. I went to bed way late and I, I got up super early, so I don't remember how early it was, but when I started checking, you know, all my notifications and uh, just looking at the news, seeing what's happening in the world, what's happening in the world of Christianity, here was the headline that greeted me. SBC, stands for Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC or the Southern Baptist Convention president calls on Christians to stand up for LGBT rights. Or, whoa, now stop right there. Now, that's that's a pretty controversial headline, all right? So we got the Southern Baptist president calling for Christians to stand up for LGBT rights. Okay, now, I need to... I, I can't just read that headline and start making a judgment. I need to understand, okay, what rights did he call for us to stand up for? What, 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 why, why is he even... Why is he having this conversation? What was the context of this conversation? I need to know more. So, SBC president calls on Christians to stand up for LGBT rights. This was published uh, May the 3rd, 2019, which is today. The following is taken from SBC Prez, ReformationCharlotte.org, January the 31st, 2019. All right. I don't, that's kind of a weird way of writing that. Um, I don't know. I guess that's the article. Um, that it's taken from. I don't know. Uh, there's no link to what he says. This is this, this is taken from this, but it doesn't really. I, ReformationCharlotte.org is that the name of the publication? I don't know. All right, all right. It, that the original article that he's taking this from was published January the 31st, 2019. All right. So like I told you, the end of January, beginning of February is where the controversy really started spreading. Now, they've taken this old information and they republished it today. And that's how articles continue to spread. Let's see what they have to say here. The current Southern Baptist president, J.D. Greer, I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's spelled G-R-E-E-A-R, J.D. Greer. If I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize. J.D. Greer, the, uh, the current Southern Baptist president, J.D. Greer, is uh, proving himself to be unfit for the position he holds in America's largest Protestant denomination. I'll stop right there. That's a major accusation. He's unfit. He should be removed from president of the Southern Baptist denomination. He is unfit. And what makes him unfit? Well, let's see. Over the last few years, the SBC, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, has taken a sharp turn towards, towards political 
as well as theological liberalism while pushing a social justice agenda. Now, let me stop right there. That is just filled with accusation there. I will argue that the Southern Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, has definitely moved towards a, pol a more political tone and a more political I ideology, but that is not true of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is true of a large portion of Christianity. I have talked about it over and over and over. I call it the political hijacking of American Christianity. I believe American Christianity has been hijacked by political ideology, and that political ideology, in many cases, becomes the dominant influence instead of a theological position or a biblical position. Now, I find it somewhat interesting that he's accusing the SBC of moving towards political and, and theological liberalism, because um, right here, I live in Abilene, Texas, down the road, uh, First Baptist Church, I think Dallas, is one of the leading, uh, was one of the leading evangelical voices, and I believe that's a Southern Baptist Church, one of the leading evangelical voices of support for Donald Trump. So that's not political liberalism. So I, I think that that's an unfair accusation. I think the Southern Baptist, many Southern Baptist churches, as well as many churches, have become very political, very political. And I, I, I reject that. I think our, the church is supposed to be biblical. Our ideology is supposed to be driven from the scriptures. Our, we should not become political. We should always remain biblical and theological. Our, we should be grounded in church history. We should be grounded in theology. And we should be grounded in the words of God, not political ideology. Political ideology, uh, it, you may be conservative. Your political ideology is not going to always agree with the Bible. And your political ideology should be changed by the scriptures. Don't make the scriptures conform to your political ideology. I could preach a whole sermon right there on that subject. So that accusation already makes me a little concerned because he's saying over the past few years, the, the Southern Baptist Convention has taken a sharp turn towards political as well as theological liberalism while pushing a social justice agenda. I guarantee within the Southern Baptist Convention, you have some political liberalism and theological liberalism. And within the Southern Baptist Convention, you have some political conservatism and theological conservatism. The problem is the political ideology begins to influence the theology. And it almost like you interpret theology through the lens of your political view. That is the major issue. All right, let's continue. Reformation Charlotte. Now, I guess that is the um, the uh, publication where this is coming from, uh, Reformation Charlotte reported earlier today, so this would have been January the 31st, Reformation Charlotte reported earlier today that Greer, during an exegesis of Romans 1, compared homosexuality to greed and boasting, even stating that most of these sins are more egregious in the eyes of God than homosexuality. Of course, this is foolish as homosexuality is one is the one sin that caused God to wipe. Now they have dot, dot, dot. So that means they're not giving us the full quote here. To wipe cities off the face of the earth. It is, it is according to the text, it is according to the text, he clumsily referenced the sin that God gives people over to because of their other sins. It is actually the wrath and judgment of God poured out on people to be given over to depraved minds and dishonorable passions. 
It is. It has now come to light that not only has Greer misrepresented the scriptures regarding the sin of homosexuality, he also called on Christians to stand up for the rights of LGBT people. The right that LGBT people are fighting for are, for example, the right to use the public restroom of whatever gender they choose to identify as on any given day, the right to get married and practice sodomy in the apartment next door, the right to get married in your conservative church, the right to be fully embraced as an active, affirmed, and participant member of your church, and the rights to propaganda propagandize you and your children with their vile affections that God has given them over to. And then they have dot, 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 the end. So there's obviously some parts missing that they're quoting from, from the original source. I don't like that they did that as well. But let's, let's take that accusation apart here. All right, let's go through number one. They make the claim that Sodom and Gomorrah was completely wiped out for homosexuality alone. Now, I will argue is, does the Bible in its totality teach that the only reason Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was because of their homosexuality? Or were there other factors in the overthrow, in the, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, I'm going to ask you that question. You may want to do some looking up Sodom and Gomorrah, and you may want to see what other cross-references you can find and see if there are other sins that are spoken of that led to their destruction other than just homosexuality. Now, we obviously know there's some kind of homosexuality going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. No one is denying that. I mean, the men of the city are there and they want to, you know, forcibly use the, the angels and the parents of men who came, who came into Lot's house. Now, that's obviously homosexuality. There's also an implication of forcible sexual activity going on as well. What else was going on in the city? Was it just homosexuality or was there something else? I know that's the way it's preached, but is that an accurate, is that an accurate description? And again, by me even questioning that, say, I'm going against groupthink, because what I'm supposed to do is say, Sodom and Gomorrah, those filthy, stinking homosexuals, that's the reason that city was destroyed, and God should destroy all cities that are filled with homosexuals. See, I, I challenge that and say, wait a minute, I don't know if that's a complete, accurate understanding of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. We got to look at all the scriptures about it. So keep that in mind. We may return to that in a further study. Secondly, now, there's, there's a big issue here at this last part. He's talking about the rights that LGBT people are, people are fighting for. For example, the right to use the public restroom of whatever gender they choose to identify as on any given day. Okay, now that's a right that we have to try to question and we have to challenge a little bit. Um, you know, we don't want just someone saying, hey, I, I feel like I'm a woman today, so I'm going to go walk in and use the women's restroom. I understand that there is some, some concerns there, and we should be bothered, and we should have that discussion. If this pastor, in his exegesis of Romans 1, if he's making an argument that that's the kind of right we should support, okay, I, we, we may want to have a little pushback there and go, wait a minute. Are you really wanting to support that in your church? You allow that if a man identifies as a woman, he can just walk into the women's restroom at your church? Do you support that there? What, 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 what rights are you referring to? Say, so I need a, I need a, they were not placing it in quotes of what rights he supposedly were supporting. He did not, they did not even give us the quote. In fact, in that article, they don't even give you a link to the original sermon. 
All right, let's go back to the article. So that's the first right they mention. All right. Um, second, the right to get married and practice sodomy in the apartment next door. Now, wait. Now, okay, we, we got to stop right here. So you want to take away the rights from people in America in 2019 from being able to practice sodomy in the apartment next door? Okay, so we, are we going to make a moral, is there going to become a moral law for people who get to live next to you? Hey, if I live in the apartment and I'm a Christian, I don't want the apartment next door. I don't want any sin to be going on. They better not be watching porn. They better, better not be watching movies that I disagree with. They better be married and um, not living together. They better not be, you know, engaging in fornication. They may not, they better not be agreeing in adultery. I mean, come on, like, so they want the right to live in an apartment next to you and you want to take away their rights to live in an apartment next to you because they're, they don't live a Christian lifestyle? Well, if they're not Christians, we don't want them to try to be forced by law to live a Christian lifestyle. What we want them to do is have the freedom to live their life. We want the freedom to be able to live our life, and we want the freedom to be able to proclaim that some activity is sinful, and then call them in a direct, forcible, lovable way, lo and loving way, that yes, you are in sin, repent, and turn to God for salvation. And then, when they are saved, we call them to obey God. Like that, that the, the, very, the way that article is written is almost disturbing to me. It's a very disturbing thing. It's almost implying that we don't want them to have that right. Hey, if you're if you're going to be practicing sodomy next door, we don't want you living there. Well, okay, what what other rules are going to put down? You know? What I mean, you're going to go check on the moral standard of every neighbor and if they don't live up according to your standard, then you get to remove them from living there? What if what if the rule is they don't want you practicing Christianity next to them? I mean, that's the whole article right there is just disturbing the way that is even stated. But see, I'm going against group think. I'm going against group think right there, but I'm not. I'm just trying to be biblical. I mean, Jesus didn't walk around in the New Testament arguing that the, all the people around him, you know, should be forced by law to live according to the message he was preaching. He called people to repentance and to faith. He called people to follow him. He he wasn't going around saying, we need a law stopping all all this nonsense happening. Paul and, and, and the church of Corinth wasn't calling for the Corinthians to support legislation in Corinth to stop the you know, temple prostitutes from practicing their prostitution. No, he called the church to sexual purity. He called the church to, to strengthen their marriages, that the marriage would possibly take care of their sexual desire and they would not find it for anywhere else. I mean, you don't have anywhere in the Bible where there's a call to change the culture through political or laws. And they're like, well, we don't want them to have the right to do that. So we're going to take away the rights of ungodly people to practice ungodliness next to Christians. I mean, that's the implication there. They go on to say, the right to get married in your conservative church. Okay, they, they're, if they're fighting, listen, if they're fighting for a right to get married in your conservative church, I would argue it's because the churches have policies and practices that would make that even a possible fight. Churches act like businesses and rent out their sanctuary so that people can get married. Well, if you're renting it out, 
you're operating as a business. So then that gay couple comes and say, hey, I hear you rent out your building for marriage, for wedding ceremonies, for marriage. We would like to rent the building. You're like, oh, no, you can't because you're homosexual. Well, did you check the moral status of every other person who's rented out the building? Are you only going after my sin? All right. See, here's the thing, churches. Don't rent out your building. Hey, pastors, don't hire yourself out as the, you know, you know, cha the wedding chaplain guy that will do marriages for $200, $300, $500 a pop. Stop acting like a, a business. Act like a church and say, no, we use the church for church functions. We don't rent out the building. We don't lease out the building. And we only marry people who are members of this church. So if you want to be married, go to your church and be married. And we don't use our building for that. That's a good way to just protect yourself. Protect and then have, you know, to become a member of the church, you obviously have to have a testimony of conversion. And then, you know, a member of the church is obviously uh, under biblical guidelines and could be church disciplined if they don't follow them. I mean, like you can, you can, you can do as much as possible to protect yourself, but churches have given, they've caused this problem about, you know, people wanting to use their buildings for that kind of thing. But of course, they're not going to talk about the church and the church's responsibility here. They're going to blame the LGBT community. They're going to blame them. I, this whole thing is just crazy. Uh, the right to be fully embraced as an active, affirmed, and participating member of your church. All right, you've got to ensure that your church policies and membership uh, rules are very clearly stated. And I, again, churches should fight against that. But is this pastor, is J.D. Greer arguing that the LGBTQ community get all of these things? I, I don't know. Um, and the right to propaganda, propagandize you and your children with their vile affection that God has given them over to. All right, so if you're going to take away their right to propagandize you, then do you want to lose your right to try to, quote-unquote, propagandize them? When we say propagandize, that's simply they're going to promote their life. They're going to promote their, their view of life. They're going to promote their understanding of morality. They're going to promote their view of love. And they're going to argue that love doesn't matter gender. You can love anyone you want. They're going to have their view of love, and they're going to propagandize that by teaching it, by spreading it. But guess what? I don't want to take away their rights to do that because I want the right to be able to quote unquote propagandize everyone by speaking my understanding of morality, speaking the scriptures, condemning certain behavior. So the whole, that whole article, just, there's just so much wrong with the article. But the article wants you to think, hey, the, the, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, he preached this sermon on Romans 1. He completely mishandled the scripture. He, he, he wants you to support LGBT rights. He, he disqualified himself from being the president of the SBC you know, convention. He should be removed. This is a horrible thing. End of article. No link to the sermon. No way for me to go watch it or listen to it. That's the kind of, of reporting within Christianity that is un that is ungodly in my opinion. All right, so I know I've already gone 27 minutes, but I really want to work through this. So here's what we're going to do. I have queued up the entire sermon by J.D. Greer from Romans chapter 1. I want you to listen to what he has to say about Romans chapter 1. I want you to try to listen if you can 
with a Bible open. I want you to listen. Now, listen carefully. If he makes a statement about the text, look carefully to see if he's handling the text correctly. If he is mishandling the text, it needs to be condemned. If he's misapplying the text, it needs to be condemned. If he's, if he's, if he is trying to get around what the scripture condemns, then we, then we need to obviously speak against that. But we have to allow him to deal with, you know, what is obviously, he's in Romans 1, obviously the issue of homosexuality is going to come up. We have to allow him to try to be fair, balanced, and nuanced in the approach to the text. But sometimes you can try to be so concerned. Now, this is now this it would be my argument against J.D. Greer and the modern church. Because clearly his church is template modern church. And the and the template for the modern church is you don't want to be offensive. You don't want to offend. I mean, you're a big mega church. You don't want your message to come across as too blunt, too condemning, too offensive. You want to lessen the impact of condemnation or rebuke. You don't want rebuke. You don't want condemnation. You don't want a strongly worded sermon. You want to make people feel comfortable. That is the thing I cannot stand about the modern church. When you have the scripture in front of you, you've got to preach it powerfully, directly, and if it's a rebuke, you offer a rebuke. If it's offering a condemnation, you preach that condemnation with or without offense to friend or foe, no matter how many people may get offended and not come back next Sunday. But the modern church always wants to say, ooh, we got this, we got this passage about homosexuality and it's 2019. I better be very careful because I don't want to be accused of hate speech and I don't want to be accused of being bigoted and I don't want to be accused of homophobia. So I've got to, I got to find a way to lessen this. If he is doing that, then I would condemn it. If he's not doing that, then okay, then I need to address it differently. Again, I have strong opinions here. But I don't want you, to, I don't want to give them away. I want you to do this. Understand that what you're about to hear is controversial. Understand that there's all kinds of articles being written about it. And some of the articles, as the one I just read, to me is completely unfair and not giving us enough information or enough quotes from the sermon itself for us to even be able to make a determination if if what was, we can't even make a real determination of what's in the sermon because they're not offering direct quotes and they don't even provide a link. So if you see these articles or if you hear people condemning this man for this sermon he preached in January of 2019, what should we do? We should take the time to let the man speak for himself. And again, I could go through the sermon and take out edits, but that wouldn't be fair. So we're going to play the whole sermon. I'm not going to edit it in any way, shape or form. I'm not going to jump in and add commentary. I just want you to sit back and listen. And hopefully you'll find this to be beneficial. So here is J.D. Greer. The name of the sermon is "Fall: um, How the Fall Affects Us All, I believe is the name of the sermon. Give me one second. Yes, I'm looking at it right now. How the Fall Affects Us All. How the fall affects us all. It was. It looks like, according to the their the name of their church, the name of J.D. Greer's church is Summit Church. If you go to summitchurch.com, um, trying to navigate their website and finding sermons is almost impossible. But summitchurch.com, 
It looks like the text was Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. It looks like it was preached January the 27th, 2019. So that's probably why January the 29th and the beginning of February is where the controversy started to really pick up steam. And for some reason, it's back in May uh, being sent out to people. All right. Um, how the uh, fall affects us all. Uh, from J.D. Greer, preached uh, January the 27th, 2019. The text is Romans chapter 1, 24 through 32. Uh, and the name of his website is summitchurch.com. And according to the articles, he is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You listen and you tell me what you think. You, uh, When you are done listening to this sermon, please email me at newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com, or you can use the VBC66 app. The VBC66 app, go to the feedback tab, and you can give me your uh, your feedback there as well. I may post some of these articles um, about this sermon. I may post them in the hermeneutics section of the VBC66 app. For those who will hear this message posted somewhere else on the internet, you can go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. Do a search for VBC 66. VBC stands for Victory Baptist Church. The number 66. Run it all together. VBC 66. Download the app and the hermeneutics section. I'll try to post these articles about this sermon so that you... I think I've got two of them uh, already pulled up on my iPad. I'll copy and paste them so that you can see exactly what was said and you can make your own determination. But listen to the sermon first before uh, you read any more of the articles and then see, and then let me know what you think. Now, be fair, but let's let this man exegete Romans 1, 24 to 32, and then we can critique how he handled the scriptures, right? That's all that matters. That's all. The scriptures is what matters. It doesn't matter if like I don't like his style, I don't like him, I don't like his church. Um, he he may some he may say some things that we we, we that may kind of go against something that we feel. The issue is is he mishandling the scriptures? Is he making Romans one twenty four to thirty two say something it doesn't say, or is he avoid avoiding? Listen carefully, saying what the text actually says. So you can you can try to make it say something you don't you you can try to make it say something it doesn't say and that's clearly wrong but you can also be wrong by taking a text and not saying what it actually says because you don't want to offend anyone that is wrong as well. All right, here we go. JD Greer Romans chapter 1 how the fall affects us all. Listen, think let me know what you hear and how you understand it. Thank you for listening. God bless. Well, amen and amen, Summit Church. Life change is what we are most excited about here. Amen. All right, Romans chapter one, if you have your Bible or page 22 in your journal, if you brought that with you this morning, we'll give you a warning here that this might be the toughest week that we will have in the book of Romans. Romans one, the end of it is tied in difficulty only with Romans five, Romans nine and Romans 11. Uh, so other than those three, this is gonna be the toughest week. Uh, so in fact, let's just sort of loosen things up right now. Everybody turn right now to your neighbor, look them in the eyes. If you know them, if you know them, put your hand on their shoulder and say, this is gonna be a really tough week for you, okay? And tell them, say, I'm praying for you. 
to have the faith and humility to receive this word, right? But then tell them, but it's not, from the looks of you, it's not looking optimistic right now, okay? So I got a lot to pray for. But y'all, we believe that God's word is good, do we not? Amen? We believe God's word is good when it's difficult. We believe that God's word gives life and it's worth humbling ourselves and sitting in submission to it because God speaks truth to us. I will tell you that I've been pretty nervous about this message all week long. Uh, my wife, who is my number one encourager, was trying to speak a little encouragement to me. And she's like, hey, listen, you just, it's not about you, okay? Uh, you just gonna stand up there and you're just gonna present God's word. She said, don't try to be witty or intellectual, just be yourself. And so um, I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but I'm going to try to obey that. Um, but listen, I want to pray as we begin um, today. I do want to say just right before we pray here that um, I know that we have parents that bring their children in here, um, and we always love that. Your children are always welcome in our worship services, but um, there are definitely some things that the Apostle Paul brings up at the end of Romans 1 that would be more of a, a mature theme. And so uh, I'll just say if you have a younger child in here, this may be an excellent time for you to get to know our excellent kids ministries that take place at every campus. Uh, when I ask us to pray here in a minute, you can use that if you want just to slip out with your child. If you go back to the lobby, there will be somebody back there at every campus that will um, escort you and your child, uh, take them to the kids area and you can come back in and join us. I'll pray extra long so that you can get back in before I actually begin. Okay. Uh, so you've been warned or I've given you that invitation, however you want to see it, but let's, let's pray together as we open God's word. Father, I do believe that your word is good. And I believe God that it is, I know that it is the most difficult things that I've had to encounter in your word that have brought life to me. And so father, I pray that your word would accomplish what you inspired it for. I pray that it would go forward in breaking down barriers. I pray that it would liberate and set free. I pray God, most of all, that it would give the mercy, the healing and the compassion that the words of Jesus always give. And so we ask for that. We believe that you wanna give it to us in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right. So Romans 1 or page 22. Um, here's where we left off last week. Literally, I cut you off right in the middle of a passage last week. So I'm going to take just a few minutes here and walk you through how Paul is kind of setting up his argument, because in order to understand the last part of Romans 1, you got to understand the first um, part of what he's saying there. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is, is demonstrating to us that every single person, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, all of us have essentially the same problem. And that problem is, is that all of us have turned away from the knowledge of God that was made known to us in creation and in our consciences. God has sufficiently revealed himself, Paul says, to all people. He's revealed himself both to us in creation and in us from our consciences, at least enough for us to respond to that revelation with humility and awe. The problem was we didn't want to know the truth about a glorious all ruling, holy God. And that's because we wanted to be glorious, all wise and all ruling. And so we suppress the knowledge of God that was evident in creation and from our conscience. So when it comes to the knowledge of God, I told you, we all know, we all know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. That suppression of the truth, Paul explains, takes two forms. One is an irreligious form, an irreligious expression of suppression. Think atheism or agnosticism, where you just deny that God exists. Paul is saying the only way that you can arrive at that conclusion is to have a heart that is biased against the obvious evidence of an all-powerful, creating, all-ruling God. And I will just say from my own experience, if you listen closely to an atheist, you will almost always hear that their disbelief is driven by some 
implication that comes from their being an all-glorious, all-wise God. And that implication drives how they interpret the evidence in creation. They'll say things like, well, if there really was a God, then why is there so much suffering? If there really was a God, why are there so many different religions? Why don't more people know him the way that you say that he is or something like that? That's the irreligious expression of suppression is that, is that we just deny that that God exists. The religious version of suppression, Paul explains, is that we substitute out knowledge of the true God with a version of God that we can control. I've pointed out to you that throughout history, mankind in different cultures has worshiped all kinds of different gods, but they've all had one thing in common. And that is they were conceptions of God that we could control and conceptions of God that existed to serve us. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. I explained to you that this kind of worship occurs whether you are formally religious or not. Anthropologists say that we are telic creatures. Telic is just a fancy word that means we are a purposed people, which means we always find some greater cause to live for. We find something to which we attach ultimate value, something we feel like without that one thing, life would not even be worth living. It's like Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist who is not a Christian says, he says, there are really no true atheists, practically speaking. There are just those who acknowledge the gods they're worshiping and those who do not. Even if you grew up as a Christian, I explained, chances are there was something besides God that took the ultimate central place in your heart. Maybe it was even while you were growing up in church, it was getting the approval of your friends. It was accomplishing your dreams. It was getting married, having a boyfriend, having a family one day. Something mattered more to you. You gave more glory to that created thing than you did to God. By the way, the word for glory in Hebrew is the word kabod, and it literally means weight. When you give something glory, you are giving it a weight, a godlike weight. God was supposed to be the one that made life worth living. He was the one whose will was supposed to dominate your thinking. Pleasing him was supposed to be your focus. Fellowship with him was supposed to be your life. Instead, you found something else to give that godlike weight to, the approval of your friends, material success, romance, whatever you put in that, in that category. That's the natural shape, Paul explains, of every human heart, even if you grew up in church. In some of my travels overseas, I'll, I'll go into these temples that are erected to a foreign God. I remember being in one of them um, a, a while ago over in uh, somewhere um, uh, in Asia. And there was, uh, I go in this temple, it's this gigantic, I mean, beautiful temple. And right in the middle of it is a, about a 25 foot statue of a, a goddess who has multiple breasts and, and multiple arms. And you'd watch these worshipers come in and they would prostrate themselves before this statue. And many of them were very emotional. Many had traveled a lot of miles to get uh, to this. Um, very poor, some of them, and taking the little money they had and pouring it out and offering before this statue of this God. And I remember being in that temple and just at one point, just feeling so overwhelmed at what I felt like was this spiritual darkness and the oppression that I just, I had to leave. I had to walk outside and to get out away from it. And I remember later finding myself just going back over that incident in my mind and, and feeling sorry for the people there and thanking God kind of in my heart that I wasn't, I wasn't like them. But then in the middle of that thought, it just occurred to me. I had a whole list of things in my heart that have taken God's place, just like that statue had. And those things that I had given God-like way to my heart are just as nauseating and oppressive to God as that statue would be to me. I have lived in my life, for example, for the admiration of others. I've given that God-like weight in my life and I've pursued that sometimes even at the, at the expense of pursuing God. And, and that idol, that statue, that false worship is just as nauseating to God as it was, as, as that statue was to me. The bottom line that Paul is getting to is that all of us alike 
all of us have rejected the truth that is evident in creation and in our consciences about an all-glorious, all-ruling God, and we have replaced that God with created things, things we could control, our own will, and gave those things the place and priority in our hearts that only God deserves, all of us. For this reason, Paul says, God delivered us over to disgraceful passions. This was the first wave of God's judgment, I explained. God just gave us what we asked for. I compared it to if the earth were to say to the sun, I am sick and tired of you being in the middle of the solar system. And all day, every day, I got to rotate around you. Now I'm going to be in the center of the solar system and everything is going to rotate around me. Well, if the sun, you know, were looking at the earth, they wouldn't have to punish it by sending out a nuclear ray of energy. The sun might just say to the earth, all right, have it your way. The earth is 30,000 times smaller than the sun and would not have the ability to keep all the planets in orbit. And so the solar system would begin to unravel simply because the sun gave to the earth what it asked for. When the same way, what God did to us in the first wave of judgment is he just granted us our wish. And when we put ourselves instead of him at the center of our lives, then our lives and our society begin to unravel. I explained to you that throughout the rest of the passage in Romans, when you read it in Greek, you see a lot of kind of tit for tat, a lot of parallelism in, 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 in the passage. For example, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for an image. So God exchanged them over to disgraceful passions and unnatural sexual desires. Um, uh, they dishonored God. So God let them dishonor themselves. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So God gave them over to an unfit mind. What Paul then begins to do now, and that's what we're going to get into today, is he then begins to give examples of what this looks like in our lives, in our families, and in our societies when we begin to come unraveled. Verse 26, the, uh, their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Uh, the men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now, this is the longest and the clearest passage in the Bible on homosexuality. And let me just go ahead and acknowledge right up front here, I, I know, I know that historically we in the church have not done a great job in talking about this and maybe even an, a worse job in caring for those who are going through this. But let's begin by at least looking humbly and open-mindedly at what, at what God's word says about this. And then afterwards, we'll talk about what that means for those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that one of the results of displacing God in the center of our hearts was that we developed unnatural sexual patterns. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 25. So God exchanged our natural healthy passions for unnatural ones, verse 26. In one sense, we shouldn't be surprised that this is where Paul turns first. Paul is not picking on homosexuality. He is not saying that it is a worse sin than all the other sins. It's just that if God made us in his image, male and female, then it shouldn't surprise us that the effects of our rejection of God in the center of our life would show up in those primary relationships. Paul cites homosexuality, one scholar says, not because it is a greater sin than any other, but because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. Now, in recent years, some have tried to say that this passage, Romans 1, 26 and 27, refers only to certain kinds of homosexual acts, promiscuous homosexual acts like prostitution or one night stands or a master forcing a slave to have sex with, with him or that kind of thing. And that Paul was just, he was just unfamiliar 
with, with, um, with a committed, loving, same-sex relationship, the kind that we see in our society today. And if Paul had been aware of that, he most certainly would not have lumped them all together if he saw the friendship and the sacrificial love and the commitment, the union that we see in same-sex relationships sometimes today, then he certainly would have, have understood that that is a, a, very natural, a very natural thing. But that is not true. Enduring, committed, same-sex relationships were most certainly a thing in the Roman world. And Paul most definitely knew about them. Plutarch, who was a, a contemporary of Paul's, not a Christian, in the first century makes a distinction in his writing between homosexual sex for mere pleasure, which he considered to be unworthy, and homosexual practice that was rooted in a committed relationship, which Plutarch considered to be beautiful and worthy. In one of Plato's works, who wrote you know, about 300 years before Paul, Plato mentions two adult men who were lovers for more than 10 years. As a well-read, well-traveled Roman citizen, Paul would certainly have known about these things. Paul would have known about a very dominant stream within Roman culture. Yet Paul does not distinguish between kinds of homosexual acts. In Romans 1, he identifies all sexual relationships between men between men and women between women as a departure from the creator's design for human flourishing. They are unnatural, he says. Literally in Greek, he says they are against nature. Now, again, it is important to realize that Paul is not just randomly picking on homosexuality here. He's just citing it as one of the clearest examples of elevating our desires over the creator's design. We're in a situation in which we say, it's not about what the creator wants. It's not about the creator's design. It's about what I want. Homosexuality is just one, one example though. And so Paul goes on to mention the other ways that our idolatry, the other ways that our prioritizing of our desires over the creator's design, other ways that we see creation unravel. We're gonna come back to this discussion on homosexuality in a minute, but first, let's just get our, our, work, our, our way through the rest of what Paul says here. Verse 28, and because they, by the way, they, um, that is Paul rhetorically building an argument. You're gonna see in chapter two that they is we. Paul's gonna explain that he's a chief member of this group as are all of us. This is not an us and them, like those sinners and us righteous people. He's like, everybody's they, We're, it's a big old we. There's no us and them, just one gigantic group, we. And so every time you see they in Romans one, you can read it as we. And because we did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered us over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. Then he begins to begin to list out things. We saw sexual disorder. That was the first thing, verses 26 and 27. Now we've got economic disorder. They're filled with all unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness. You could think of that again as economic disorder. Then you got social disorder. They're full of envy and murder and quarrels and deceit and malice, their gossips and their slanders. Again, social disorder, just think Facebook um, right there. Uh, then you got spiritual disorder. Verse 30, they're God haters. They're arrogant, they're proud, they're boastful. They are inventors of evil. That's a, a, a spiritual disorder. And then you've got disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. You could think of that as family disorder. You got sexual disorder, economic disorder, social disorder, spiritual disorder, family disorder. And that is not even intended to be an exhaustive list. It's just a sample. What Paul is trying to show you is that our idolatry, the elevation of our desires over God's will, the insertion of ourself in the center rather than God has affected every single part of our lives. It's what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. That doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we could be, just that our rejection of God at the center of our lives has corrupted every other part of our lives. 
Paul starts with homosexuality, but he goes on to show how every part of our lives, literally every dimension of our lives is affected by the disorder that comes from putting ourselves in the center instead of God. I was, uh, when I was a student in college, I was part of this uh, thing, this extracurricular thing called the North Carolina Student Legislature, where every year um, each college would send a delegation down to Raleigh here where um, you would have a team and you would present bills and you would debate the bills and try to pass them. They would put us all up in this one hotel in downtown Raleigh. So you got one hotel filled with hundreds of college students. You can imagine what that situation was like. Um, first night I was there, I went to bed about 2.30 in the morning, which was about two hours before everybody else went to bed. And um, I was five roommates. Um, I was the only guy in the room. So I'm in bed and I'm, I'm, you know, that, that, that moment right before you go to sleep, that kind of split second, I was just going into REM and, uh, and all of a sudden the door of my hotel room just bust open. One of my roommates guy, he, he's out of breath. Um, he's got a panic look on his face and he's like, JD, he's like, grab your Bible and come quick. That's all he said. Now I just led this guy to Christ about three weeks before he's a brand new Christian. I honestly thought somebody was dying and needed to get saved. Like they'd gone into cardiac arrest and I need, so I jump out of bed. Um, I, you know, all I had on was a pair of shorts. Uh, so I grabbed the first thing that I see this jacket, just grab, but it doesn't fit. Um, I grab my Bible and I'm running down the hall after this guy. Um, he takes a left into this, um, this hotel room. So I follow him, I go in, I go in this room and there is no less than 35 college students that are seated all over the beds and the couches in this hotel room. And they're all just sitting there. And my friend out of breath, me out of breath, my friend's like, points to me, he's like, here he is, here he is. And I'm like, here who is? He looks at me and he says, they had a question about homosexuality and I told him that you could answer it. Now, <laughs> this is like every speaker's worst nightmare, right? I'm pinching myself, I'm like, is this really happening? Because I'm showing up ha literally half naked in front of a group of total strangers to address on the spot Maybe the toughest question you could possibly ask in a group of college students. So I'm standing there um, and I look down at what I'm wearing. And it's this purple like uh, track jacket that again, it just didn't even fit. And I'm just standing there, you know, kind of just there, just me and uh, no shirt on. And uh, they're staring awkwardly at me and I'm staring awkwardly back at them. And I was like, well, you know, what do you do? So I, I, I thought Romans one, Romans one, I know says something about, about this. So I open up and I literally just read the passage to them trying to think of what I'm gonna say. Um, and I get to the end of that list and um, I said, so what do y'all think about that? And, uh, and one, of the, uh, <laughs> one of the guys goes, well, I get bed. he said, well, it sounds to me like the Bible is saying, um, he said, it's only the Bible is saying that, that homosexuality is like the worst sin. It's like the worst form of corruption. And I said, well, I don't know everything there is to know about this passage, but I'm, I'm positive that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, what you see is that Paul identifies that as one result of a life that is no longer centered on God. But then he goes on to, into these other things. And did you listen to the rest of that list? And did you identify yourself in almost 95% of those other things? I asked him, I said, how many of you are guilty of 95% of the things that are listed in that list? Let me just go back through them. In fact, I'll do it with you. Let's walk back through that list. All right, well, well, we already did verse 26 and 27. You just kind of, if you got your text there in front of you, just put a check above it if you were guilty of it. They're filled with unrighteousness. They were evil, greed, always one more than they had wickedness, full of envy, jealousy about their friends, murder. You say, well, I ain't ever murdered nobody. Well, remember Jesus said that if you hate somebody in your heart or, or you desire, you, you delight in their harm, then that is the spirit of murder and you're guilty of it. Quarreling, 
deceit, malice. They're gossips. Talk about their friends sometimes. Slanderers. They tell lies uh, sometimes about, about people to, to gain advantage. They're God haters. You know, I'm not, not a God hater. Well, based on how Paul has defined it in Romans 1, we kind of all are because we want to be in the center instead of God. So God haters. We're arrogant. We're proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And just in case, you know, Paul missed you. He just threw this one in for fun. Like disobedient to parents. Anybody here want to be like, nope, every single time with respect, full submission, right away, all the way, immediate obedience. Nobody, nobody comes out clean in that list. And so I asked him, I said, how many of y'all are guilty of 95% of that list? What Paul is showing us is that the corruption manifests itself differently in different people. I might struggle more than you with certain things on that list and certain other things you might struggle with more than me, but my heart is corrupt and my heart is full of disorder and so is yours. In fact, here's a really important question to ask about that list. Are those things, listen, are those things the cause of God's judgment or the result of God's judgment? Careful. Are they the cause of God's judgment or are they the result of it? The answer is both. They are both the cause and the result of it. The chief sin, the really wicked sin, was rejecting God as the center and the ruler of our life. That's the sin that brought on all the other corruption. And that original sin, that chiefly wicked sin of rejecting God's rule and putting our rule in its place, that's the one that all of us have participated in alike equally. And see, here's the thing. We don't always get to choose which way that corruption affects us. In some people, the corruption manifests itself as envy or pride or unbridled personal ambition or an out of control temper. Maybe it manifests as an ability to, in an inability to control your impulses for food or a propensity toward doubt or worry or depression. Those things are all included in that list in Romans 1. In others, it manifests itself in some form of corrupted sexual desire. By the way, all of us in some way have experienced corrupted sexual desire. But the point is that the central sin is the same. We rejected God's rule and substituted our own in its place. That manifests in different people differently and we don't get to choose our corruption. In fact, let me say something here that I fear might get misunderstood, but I feel like it's important enough that even though I might get misunderstood, I'm gonna say it anyway. In this sense, you can almost think of homosexuality as an affliction and not just a sinful choice. Because for most gay people, they feel like they didn't choose those desires. In fact, here's what I've learned after two decades of pastoring. Almost every person I've encountered, in the church at least, almost every person who struggles with a same-sex attraction is almost always dealing first and foremost with an unanswered prayer. God, why didn't you change this when I asked you to? God, I asked you to take these desires away and you didn't do it. So let me say that again, especially for you parents, for if your child one day says this to you, this is what you have to understand. Every Christian I know who's struggling with same-sex attraction is dealing first and foremost with the question of why did not God did not answer their prayer to change them, which many people means that people with same-sex attraction really ought to be first and foremost recipients of our compassion. That doesn't make same-sex behavior any less sinful, any more than it would make outburst of temper or envy or materialism less sinful. It just means that we don't always get to choose our weakness or our corruption. And see, that means that gay and lesbian people are not worse sinners than other people. They're not a different kind of sinner than the rest of us. They just got affected with a different dimension of the curse. And that changes how we think about it and how we talk about it. 
You see, there are three ways I see us really going wrong with this in the church at large. Three ways we can go wrong. Number one, and one, we believe that God doesn't really care about this. We believe that God doesn't really care about this. He does. He is crystal clear in this passage, as well as at least five other passages in the Old and New Testament, passages like, for example, 1 Corinthians, where honestly, he could not get any clearer. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. Anybody who willfully and obstinately says, this is who I am and what I'm going to do, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Somebody says, but I was, I was born this way. I don't dispute that. And some of us were born with a propensity towards selfish ambition or maybe a raging temper. The Bible's message is that we all need to be born again. You understand that possessing a desire innately doesn't make it right, right? Possessing a desire innately doesn't make it right. Anger or ambition or a certain sexual desire are not right just because they come from deep inside of me. You know, if I were to, to approach my wife and say, you know, sweetheart, you are so beautiful. I mean, people are just amazed. In fact, this is true. I mean, my wife is like a 10, um, you know, and so people, when they meet us, especially if they knew us when we were younger, because I'm mean, like in college, everybody agrees. I was like a solid four and a half. Okay. So they're like, how did this relationship actually happen? Because you just, you know, way out of your league. And so, so, you know, they see, and I go to her and I'm like, okay, so obviously I'm just way above my pay grade. I, you know, just way more beautiful than I could ever have hoped for in a wife. But you know what, after being married to the most beautiful woman I know for two decades, sweetheart, sometimes I still find myself occasionally attracted to other women. So I feel like the only conclusion that I can come to is that I was born polygamous. And I just got to be true to myself, sweetheart. And so I'm gonna have to have these relationships with other women. Veronica would say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to be true to myself and smack you upside the head with a two by four, right? <laughs> because just because that desire comes from within you doesn't mean that it is a right or healthy desire. The fact that we possess these desires innately just shows that we have corrupt hearts and we need to be born again. And that's Paul's whole point. You can't reform your way into heaven. Religion and law doesn't have the power of God. You gotta be born again from above. The gospel is a resurrection power that you don't have in yourself. That's why you and I are hopeless without Jesus. I've got desires I can't overcome. You got desires you can't overcome. Jesus is the one who overcomes. Therefore, you must be born again. The gospel message is not let the gay become straight. The gospel message is let the dead become alive. And that is impossible apart from the power of God. Which leads me to the second way that I see us going wrong here. Number two, we think it's the worst sin. Paul lists homosexuality as simply one corruption among many. Again, look at the rest of the list. Here's a question when I read that list. Do you think of deceit and boasting as equally depraved? How about greed? Do you think of greed as equally depraved as homosexuality? How about a rebellious attitude against your parents? Do you see that as equally depraved? Paul would. You know, you're like, oh, I'm just worried my, my, my child's got a same-sex attraction. You ought to be worried that they have a rebellious attitude toward authority because in God's book, that's every bit the same. In another one of Paul's letters, Paul even talks about the pride that comes from religion and an obsession to do everything right and be better than everybody else as the same kind of idolatry. Is that equally depraved in your book? People who are judgmental? People who look down on others and, and try to be a certain kind of good, whether it's a good mom or good husband or good Christian, so they can look down on people. Is that equally depraved to same-sex attraction? It should be. I mean, in terms of frequency of mention or the passion with which Paul talks about it, it would appear that quite a few other sins are more egregious in God's eyes than homosexuality. 
Jen Wilkin, who's one of our favorite Bible teachers here and who's actually leading our women's conference. She said, she said, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about. And we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Throughout Jesus's ministry in his life, we see him demonstrating great, just incredible sympathy for those caught in sexual sin and great animosity toward the religiously proud. In fact, Jesus one time, not one time ever said that it was difficult for the same sex attracted to go to heaven. He did say it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, eye of a needle, than it was for a religiously proud or materialistically successful person to enter into the kingdom of God. That is not to say that same-sex behavior is not sinful, just to say that we often present it differently than the Bible does. The worst sin, the core sin, the sin behind all the other sins is one that we are all alike guilty of, and that is replacing God's rule with our rule, replacing ourselves at the center where he belonged. Only when we grasp, only when we grasp this truth will we become ministers of the gospel. When we understand like Paul did, that we are the worst sinner that we know, only then, when you, only when you understand that, will you understand that if Jesus came to die for you, that there's nobody he didn't die for. And when you finally realize that in your soul, you'll stop being a judgmental, pharisaical dispenser of the law, and you'll suddenly become a gospel witness. And your life will no longer be characterized by judgmentalism and fundamentalism. It'll be characterized by compassion. You'll start loving your neighbor like somebody made in the image of God and feeling compassion for them and their weakness you will begin to treat them first and foremost like people who deserve compassion, not scorn or judgment or a political voting block that we need to marginalize. When you understand that, then what that means is that you become a person who will, for example, stand up and be among the fiercest advocates for the preservation of the dignity and the rights of LGBT people because we recognize that gay and lesbian people are essentially just like us, people made in the image of God like us and deserving of all the dignity and respect that we desire for us or our children. There is no them. That's what Paul is saying. It's just big old weak. That means you ought to see in the face of every sinner a reflection of the corruption that afflicts your own heart. You ought to see in their face the fruit of the rebellion that you have participated in. Is that how you read Romans 1? Here's the third way that we go wrong. Number three, assuming it's hard for LGBTQ people to get to heaven. Y'all, let me say something really, really clearly here, okay? Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because heterosexuality does not send you to heaven. What sends you to hell is refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord and center of your life, regardless of how that manifests itself. It might manifest itself in your refusal to let Jesus be Lord over sexual, your sexual life, yes. But it might manifest itself in your refusal to let Jesus be Lord over your money. It might manifest itself in your refusal to let Jesus control your career. It's not where you express your rebellion that matters. It's the fact that that rebellion exists in your heart. Rosaria Butterfield, whose story I've shared with you before here, she was a practicing lesbian, very outspoken professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University, a culture warrior on the far left. She said it was Romans 1 that brought her to faith in Christ. The pastor who led her to Christ refused, she said at first, to argue with her about her lesbianism. He told her that according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life. The real issue, according to Romans 1, is how she defined herself, how she sought fulfillment. It was Romans 1, Rosaria explains, that revealed my heart to me. In Romans 1, she said, Paul showed me 
that all of us go through the same thing that Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Eve suddenly found herself asking, who has the right to declare what is good? Up until then, God had been the one who declared everything good. God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. Suddenly in Genesis 3, Eve is like, mm, that tree, the knowledge of good and evil that God has forbidden, I think that's good. And Eve decided it's not God who determines what's good, it's me who determines what's good. Rosaria said, I had to realize I had to do the same exact thing. I had to decide, is it my desires that determine what's good or God's design? Who is the Lord of my life? Is it my desires or God's word? She says, she says in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, to play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for his glory. She says what that means is that repentance for the gay or lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as it does for the straight or the religious person. Repentance means saying, God, I'm sorry for elevating my desires over your will. I am sorry for attempting to try to define my identity apart from your design for me. I am sorry for taking on myself the authority to decide what is good in my life. I am sorry for seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment rather than from giving glory to you. I recognize Jesus as the Lord. And so I turn over control to him. That's what repentance looks like for a gay, straight, rich, poor, young, old, Jew, Gentile, black or white person. We all come to Jesus in the same way. The core sin for all of us is, I want to be God. I want to determine what's good. I want to be in control. Repentance is the same for all of us. I surrender my right to do that and recognize that you are the Lord. And then salvation looks the same as all of us because it's Jesus washing away the stain of our sin and filling our hearts with resurrection life that gives us the ability to begin to wrestle with these corruptions. The good news for you, no matter who you are, is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And it doesn't matter what kind of sinner you are. It matters what kind of savior he is. Bottom line here, bottom line here. Paul's approach to homosexuality is neither what we in our culture would call classically liberal or classically conservative. He doesn't deny its sinfulness like a liberal would, nor does he elevate it as the chief of all sins like a conservative might. He lists it as one of many examples of the corruptions that come from a society that has rejected God and replaced ourselves and our desires at the center where he belongs, a rebellion in which all of us have alike participated equally. So I just wanna say, listen, I wanna make this very clear. If you are here and you are somebody who struggles or possesses same-sex attraction, I want you to understand very clearly that God loves you as much as he loves me. I want you to understand that as his representatives, I know we're a very poor reflection of him, but as his representatives, we love you. And we love you regardless of the way that you feel, the way that you feel like you are. We do not believe that your sexual identity defines you. We believe that you are first and foremost, a child of God created in his image. And we would love to talk to you about how you can wrestle this with God's word and, and what Jesus is and how he feels about you and his unconditional love and his promises to help. And if you're a parent here and you're wondering how to handle your kid because your kid has just come to you like this. Yeah, I'm not saying we're experts on it, but we wanna walk with you in it because there are some ways that the gospel would teach us to walk with somebody in the midst of this kind of thing. And we wanna go through this with you. That is what the gospel says to people in whatever, whatever place we find ourselves. We find that ultimately there's one kind of sinner and one kind of savior. Paul gives us one more verse, and it's got some very important kind of implications in it. So let's, let's hit that, verse 32. You see, although we know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, we all know in our hearts there's a right from wrong. 
We know that God is against the wrong, but not only do we do these things anyway, even though we know they're wrong, we even rationalize and sometimes even applaud those who practice them. You see, what we begin to look, see, as we look back through history, we see that idolatry has produced the most horrendous sins throughout history. Corruption, sins that we look back on now and we can clearly see how corrupt they were. Yet at the time, at the time they were, they were institutionalized and they were applauded. It was corruption in them that we can see clearly now, but they couldn't see then. It was idolatry, for example, that we know drove some of the most brutal conquests in history. They were greedy. At the time, these conquering warriors were not treated like depraved people, they were treated like heroes. They were mighty, victorious heroes. Now we look back on these epics of history and we say, what's wrong with them? You can't just march into somebody's land and steal their stuff and rape their women and take their children and take everything that belongs to them. That's depraved. We see that now, but they didn't see that then because they were blinded by their idolatry. It was idolatry in our own country that led for example, to the unfair treatment of indigenous peoples, or it was idolatry that fueled our nation's horrendous history on slavery and oppression. You go back and read our founding documents, Thomas Jefferson and our other founding fathers, they knew it was wrong. They knew it, but they rationalized it because it was good for the economy and they didn't wanna upset the status quo. Tragically, that's why many of the Christians at the time who should have known better didn't speak up or even rationalized it and participated in it. We know, for example, that some of the first slaves to arrive on, on, on American shores in the East Coast at Jamestown were brought by a Dutch trader. The English there in the early 1600s refused to take them into slavery. They're like, one of these people are made in the image of God like us, we can't take them as slaves. So instead what they did is they put them in this indentured servanthood program where eventually they could buy their own freedom. Now, that's not a great economic system, but it's better than slavery, right? Within 50 years, within 50 years, these same English in one generation had now changed their thoughts on the image of God in the African and decided that they really were okay to buy and sell as slaves because historians say they figured out how much slavery could lead to economic gain. In other words, we knew, we knew, but we didn't know because we didn't want to know. Martin Luther King Jr. was clear that he was not introducing into American culture some new truth. He was calling us to reckon with what we knew instinctively already to be true. What was in our very creed as Americans, that all men are created equal and all are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words that were written by a man who owned slaves. So we know, we always knew, but we didn't know because we didn't want to know because of our idolatry. And so we practiced it and approved it and applauded it and institutionalized it. Even now where racism and bigotry exist, we still know, we still know, but we don't want to know. And so we don't know. Now, see, we look back on these things now, right? And we recognize them as corruption. And we say, well, how could they have been so blind to how corrupt those things were? Yet we continue to practice the same idolatry and are equally blind to the corruption that our idolatry fills our society with. There's lots of different things I could talk about here, but last week was National Right to Life Sunday. In many ways, the, at the bedrock of the pro-choice agenda is a commitment to protect idolatry. I wanna be the one. I want to be the one instead of God who determines the life or death of the baby based on not his design, but how it affects me. In fact, I went to the Planned Parenthood, site, Planned Parenthood website and I pulled off um, their explanation of their commitment to abortion, elective abortion. They said, and I quote, everybody has their own unique and valid reasons for having an abortion. 
Some of the many different reasons people decide to end a pregnancy include, well, they're not in a relationship with somebody they wanna have a baby with. Well, it's, not, it's just not a good time in their life to have a baby. They wanna finish school or focus on work or achieve other goals before having a baby. Or they just don't want to be a parent. By the way, I realize that there are a number of you that, that very likely might be struggling with this right now. I know that we have women in this church who have had abortions. I know that some are currently experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. And I know that you were hurting and you were confused. And maybe you felt like in the situation, you didn't have any other options. And there were all these pressures that were on you and you didn't know what to choose. And I don't want to make this any harder than it is. I genuinely don't. We are here for you to walk with you in that. I know that we even in our church have people who work, the people that attend our church that work in some of these clinics. And I know that you entered that profession, not with any ill will, but you did it because you wanted to serve. And so I understand why you're conflicted when, when I get into something like this, but I just, I want you to think about this. The most important question that we have to consider in this question and any question of this type is, is this, is the baby inside the womb a human life? Is it made in the image of God? And if so, what are the creator's designs for that baby? And is it ever right to willfully take innocent human life? Somebody says, well, my rights, my body. I agree, but the unborn child is not part of your body. That baby has her own DNA. It has her own brain waves and her own blood type. It is not part of your body. I've always believed that women and men should have control over their bodies, which is why I have to be against elective abortion because it destroys an innocent female or male body without their consent. People say, well, what about rape or incest? Listen, that is a, a tragic and unspeakably painful situation. But here's what you have to ask. Is the child at fault for how they got there? Are they not still made in the image of God? Are they not still innocent human beings? When people ask that question, what they usually mean is, well, this baby came to me through one of the most painful and tragic events of my life. Should I be forced to bear the burden of something that just reminds me of that pain? And that certainly is a heart-rending situation. But again, here's the most important question. How does a civil and just society treat innocent human beings that remind us of painful events? By killing them? Would we do that to a, with a two-year-old that reminds us of a painful event? Again, the question is whether this is a human being made in the image of God. And is it God's design for us to protect innocent human life or to use it or dispose it when it's convenient for us? People say, well, what about those babies that we know are gonna be mentally disabled or have some kind of significant deformity? Are they not still made in the image of God? If so, then they deserve our protection. At the end of the day, the question is, who gets to determine whether a baby lives or dies? Is it the creator's design? which is an innocent people made in the image of God deserve our protection? Or do we get to deny that when it's inconvenient for us? By the way, even if you're, even if you're unsure, you're like, well, you know, scientifically, medically, I'm not sure when the baby actually becomes a human being and you have all these questions. Even, even if we just suspended that question for a minute, I actually think it's pretty clear, but if you suspended it and you're saying, we're not sure if it's a human being. The way I think about it is like this. If you go hunting with a friend and you and your friend get separated, and as you're out there hunting, suddenly something rustles on the bushes and it might be a deer or it might be your friend. You just go ahead and take the shot, just unsure which one it is on the chances that it might be a deer. No, if there's any chance at all, it's a human life. You don't take the shot. If there's any question about is the baby a human being, then you side on the side of preserving human life. Now, again, I realize that I know some of you got in what felt like an impossible situation. 
And there were all kinds of pressure coming and maybe you felt like you had no other option. I need you to understand that there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is not judgment coming from us. We do not consider you a worse sinner than any of us. And you can experience forgiveness like any of us. I'm just trying to show you that this whole discussion is undergirded by an unwillingness to trust God and do things his way. Rejecting God's way just is gonna lead to regret and more corruption like it always has. Idolatry always led to corruption. We can see that clearly in history. When we do it, it's also going to lead to corruption in our lives, whereas trusting God leads to life. I got to see this up close and really personal in a way that I was not expecting. Um, Last year, um, around this time of year, um, it was around National Life to Life Sunday. I didn't preach on it, but at the end of the service, I just, I, or beginning maybe, I just made a few comments about, about our commitment to love both the unwed mother and to care for her as well as the human life that she is carrying and, and urge people to trust God and, and do things his way. Well, didn't know this, but there was a girl in one of our campuses who had an appointment that afternoon to go to Planned Parenthood to have her baby aborted. She wasn't a Christian and she says I really struggle with it. And she said, I didn't you know what to do, but I just decided I was gonna cancel the appointment and I didn't go through with the abortion. She said, um, she, she puts the baby out for adoption and in the providence of God, um, there's a family that is connected to our church that adopts this baby. I didn't know any of this story at all. Well, all of a sudden, um, uh, or about six weeks ago, um, there's an appointment on my calendar and I don't recognize the name. So the person comes in and it was this couple that I'd never met before and uh, they're carrying this, uh, this child here. And they said, we just want you to know that you're a part of this girl's story because when her mother decided her to give her up for, to not go through the abortion, give her up for adoption, we were the ones that received her. And this life now is a part of, 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 of the world. Y'all, this, this is God's design right here, okay? This is God's design. And people ask me, they're like, why? Why would you talk about this? It's controversial, it's political. It's not political. This is a human life. That's why I talk about it. And because this is not, this is, this is what God's design is. And I can just see somebody, I mean, I know I'm gonna get all kinds of emails on this and it's okay. I mean, I, I, I'll definitely read them, but it's, um, I, you know, people, I can see this person at home thinking, am I gonna write this angry email or am I gonna cancel the appointment? And if I gotta feel 10 angry emails for that one little girl, I'll do it times a thousand. Um, we understand that idolatry leads to corruption. And here's the thing, y'all, it's so easy for us to see it in other things, but then we practice the same idolatry and it leads to corruption just the same in our lives. Verse 32, although they know God's just sentence, they not only do them, they even applaud those who practice them. We got to see a horrific and clear illustration of that this week, did we not? The New York state legislature passes a bill giving people the right to abort up to the very moment of birth. Can you tell me the difference between a baby two minutes before it comes out of the birth canal and two minutes after? And can you explain to me how, 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 how killing that baby inside the womb is somehow helpful for the life of the mother? And when they pass this, the legislator applauds. Don't hear, don't hear just, don't hear judgment in that. If anything, I, when I tell that based on Romans 1, I don't look at these things and say, what's wrong with those people? What I say is, what's wrong with us? I have voluntarily participated in the same idolatry that led to that. And I am experiencing the same kinds of corruptions in my heart. The chief wickedness is not abortion. The chief wickedness is not slavery, as wicked as that is. The chief wickedness is not homosexuality. The chief wickedness is replacing God at the center of your life with yourself. 
You and I cannot fathom how wicked and guilty that is when you say to God, you will not be in charge, I'll be in charge. You don't declare what's good, I declare what's good. I don't live for your glory, I live for my own. That is the chief sin and it led not just to all these sins, it led to hell itself. Where Paul is headed is Romans 3.10. We're not there yet, but this is where he's headed. Romans 3.10, there's nobody righteous, not even one, nobody. Not gay, not straight, not church, not unchurched or Jew or Gentile. Not even one person has ever responded to God like they should. There's nobody who understands. There's nobody who seeks God, nobody. All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throats, our throats are open graves. We deceive with our tongues, we gossip, we tear down. Vipers, venom is under our lips. Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and slander and all kinds of unkind things. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in our paths. For all have sinned. For all have sinned, Paul says, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. We all stand under judgment. Not just certain kinds of sinners, but all kinds of sinners. And so the only hope for us, he's gonna explain, is gonna be in the blood of Jesus. The greatest truth of Romans, I've told you, the greatest truth of Romans is that the righteousness of God is not just a standard by which he judges us. The righteousness of God is a gift that he gives to those who admit that they have no righteousness of their own and that Jesus earned it in their place. The gospel that Paul is pointing us to is itself the power of God. It is the power that has the ability to cleanse us from the deepest sin and begin to heal the worst kind of corruption. It is not religion that you need. It is not reform that you need. It is new life in Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ alone could do for you. That is the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he came not to reward the righteous, he came to save the sinner. And so you and I have all participated alike in this rebellion. We're all experiencing the corruption, but Jesus died for all of us and all of those who call upon his name can be saved, which is why at this church, we sing songs like this. There is a fountain filled with blood. By the way, if you grew up in church, you're like, oh yeah, it's a great song. If you're new to church, you're like, what kind of freak show is this? There's a fountain filled with blood and you people are talking about playing in it and like, that's gross. Yeah, we talk about it. Filled from Emmanuel's veins, drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners, you see, plunged beneath that flood. It's not some morbid, macabre insistence on blood. It's just that we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering the penalty of death that we had brought on ourselves that our sin deserved to die. Our rejection of God put us under the sentence of death. And Jesus stepped in the way and he said, I'll take that penalty in their place. It showed us that the righteousness of God didn't just mean that God was a righteous and holy God. He was also a merciful father who didn't want us to suffer the penalty of our sins. So he took it in our place if we would receive it as our own. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty state. That was for me and it's for you and it's for people of whatever kind of sinner they find themselves as. The dying thief, you see, rejoice to see. The dying thief represents the worst kind of person you could imagine. There on the cross beside Jesus, a murderer, a thief, a rapist. He rejoiced to see. He lived a life that was totally unworthy. And in that moment, he saw on that cross that Jesus had lived the life he was supposed to live and then was dying the death that he'd been condemned to die. And a man who'd lived and done hardly anything ever good in his life said, I believe that you can be my savior. And he turned from his sin on the cross and he trusted in Jesus and he was saved. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, 
Though vile as he, I may not have murdered or raped or stolen like he has, but I've participated in the same rebellion. And there may I, though vile as he, I can wash all my sins away. Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow I can be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. We stand up here and we're not talking about judgment. Whether you're struggling with certain kind of sexual um, sexual attraction, whether you've um, been a part of an abortion, whether you have committed whatever sin, it's grace. It's a yes, our sin is bad and it put Jesus on the cross, but his grace is greater and exists to save you and to serve you. So we're gonna end our time just worshiping the grace of God that saves us all. So why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses, bow your heads. Listen, if you've never received Jesus, you can do that in these moments here. Campus pastor in a moment will explain to you how to do that. But us all want us to come back to the foot of the cross and marvel, marvel at this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, this resurrection power that can turn ashes into beauty. Let's marvel in it and wonder in it. Father, open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in Jesus' name.